All right, we're continuing in James tonight, and we're going to be in chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. So you can go ahead and turn there if you have a Bible with you. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the time that we have had in James so far. And we pray that as you have faithfully spoken to us by your spirit and built us up as individuals and built us up as a church through your word, that you would continue to do so tonight. May we heed the warnings that you have from James. But may we also rejoice in the good news that you provide. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love animal stories. Uh, Fiction books about animals. And my favorite one is probably The Wind in the Willows. If you've read The Wind in the Willows, uh, about five years ago, I preached on The Wind in the Willows for the kids while the ladies were away at a women's retreat. And it's probably my favorite. But there's another set of books about animals that I also like by a guy named Walter Wangren. He wrote a book called The Book of the Dun Cow, 
and The Book of Sorrows, which was the follow-up book. Anybody read those books by Walter Rangren? Okay, a couple, all the Grisms. Um, they are, they're, they're great books. And in the first book, well, so first of all, the, the books are about animals living in community. And kind of the main figure is a rooster named Chanticleer. But there's also a dog, there's hens, there's a weasel, there's mice. And they all live in community, and Chanticleer is kind of their protector. And he crows seven times a day, and it's kind of a liturgical life that they live together. And by doing this, they keep an evil serpent under the ground. There's a serpent named Worm, spelled W-Y-R-M. And Worm encircles the whole earth under the ground, from tail to mouth. And, and Worm is evil, and by the life they live, they keep Worm under the ground. But in the first book, Worm starts to move and starts to try to get at the animals to get free and to attack the community. And so the book is about these faithful creatures trying to protect their lives against this powerful enemy. And in the end, due to the self-sacrifice of one of the characters, they succeed in defeating Worm. The second book is called The Book of Sorrows. And it takes place, it starts right after the battle with Worm. And everybody is trying to recover. There's a lot who are wounded. There's great emotional disaffect from the battle. But this time, the threat doesn't come from outside, but the threat comes from within, within the community. One of the characters gets infected by Worm's remains, and he begins to become suspicious of the other animals. And all of a sudden, there's dissension and division and anger that grows in the community. And as the book goes on, the question becomes, is this community going to be able to survive? Not because of an attack from outside, but because of the division within. And of the two books, the Book of Sorrows is the one that's the more painful to read. You get done with that and it really has had an effect on you. Now, two quick caveats. One is if you decide to read these, these are not really children's books, so I wouldn't read, to, read them to kids necessarily. Uh, and the other is, if you are interested in reading these, uh, if you would talk to me first, because there's two sets of books, and you should not get the reprint. They did a lot of weird things with the reprint. So uh, just putting that out there, that's a footnote. You don't usually footnote sermons, but there was no other way to say that, so there it is. As we've been reading James, we know about the threat that comes from without, from the outside. Zealous Jews have caused Christians to flee Jerusalem, and the zealous Jews are chasing them. They're hunting them down to drag them back to court. And I read this passage from Acts 26 back when we began, James. That was in September. That was a long time ago. So I want to read it again, what Paul says in his own words about what he was trying to do to the church. So this is in Acts 24. Sorry, not 26. And Paul is before King Agrippa. And he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So this is what's going on at the time that James writes this letter to these churches. The threat from the outside is real. 
But as we get into the passage that I just read, we get indicators that there's not only a threat from the outside, but there's also a threat growing on the inside of these churches. Like Chanticleer's community of animals, there's a poison that's brewing within these churches, and it threatens to undo it. So let's start with verse 13, chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So I want to highlight two words there. First one is meekness. Meekness, as I've said before, is controlled strength. You don't fight back because you don't have to fight back. It wouldn't make sense for you to fight back. When I think of meekness, I think of dads wrestling with their kids. When dads, you know, when we wrestle with our kids, our little kids, not our older kids, but when we wrestle with our little kids, you know, we kind of let them start to beat us and then we remind them who's boss by gently putting them down. We're not picking them up and throwing them across the room necessarily. It's controlled strength. In Numbers 12, we're told that Moses is the meekest man on the face of the earth. And the context of that story is that his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam have attacked him for marrying a Cushite woman. They have spoken against him. And we get the ominous line after they say these things, and the Lord heard it. So they speak these things against Moses, and we don't get, and Moses fought back and said. Instead, we get, and the Lord heard it. God hears them, and he calls them out, and he punishes Miriam with a a temporary bout of leprosy. And the whole time, Moses doesn't fight back. He doesn't defend himself. He's the meekest man on earth because he entrusts himself to God to fight his battles for him. He doesn't have to fight back. He trusts that the Lord will protect him. And if you've entrusted yourself to God's care, why would you fight back? There's nobody higher than God. And so if we've entrusted ourselves to his care, there's no reason to fight back. You could only end up cursing and harming human beings who are made in the image of God. So that's the first one, meekness. The second word is wisdom. And as I've said before, wisdom shows us a map of reality, how things really are. And if you entrust yourself to God and you die... This is what James is wanting them to understand. If you entrust yourself to God and you die, he is still the father of lights. And going to your death would still be better than fighting against your fellow human beings. Remember, Jesus fully entrusted himself to God. And in the garden, he prayed that the cup would be taken from him, and he died anyway. But God raised him from the dead. And so wisdom reminds us that reality is such that we will encounter testing by trials of various kinds, but God will always bring good from it, and we will be raised from the dead. That's the map that wisdom reveals to us. Amen? 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust ourselves to God, keep doing good, and let God defend us and take care of us. James had said earlier that not many among them should be teachers, but some teachers are needed. We do need some leaders. And the kind of leader that James has in mind is one who knows how things really are, is wise, 
and who is self-possessed enough to control his strength as he does good works. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So James twice there mentions bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And this begins to point to the thread of division within the churches. Rivalries have begun to sprout within the churches. And maybe you have one group of leaders who is saying, we need to retaliate, we need to fight back, we need to take it to those who are persecuting us. And then other leaders are saying, no, that's not how God's going to put the world right. We need to not do that. Jesus would not like it. And angry words are being spoken from one side to another. And, and guys are undermining the authority of others and vying for power and tearing down their brothers. And some are being false to the truth, James says, which has an echo, I think, to the commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And James says, this is not how Christian leaders are to conduct themselves. This is not the way that they should behave. It's not the wisdom that comes down from above. That's friendship with the world. The way that they're acting in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that's friendship with the world, as he'll say in 4.4. And it carries with it the poisons of hell. It's demonic. And James says, if you want to know if there's an internal problem in your group, check the fruit. What kind of fruit is developing out of it? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And so it's a diagnostic. Is there disorder in the community? Are there vile practices going on and no one's saying anything about it? James says, if so, then you know that jealousy and selfish ambition is the root cause. That's what's causing it. Last week, Sam was uh, in a lean manufacturing class where they studied the Toyota production system. And they studied the Toyota uh, method for problem solving. It's an eight-step problem solving scheme. And the first step is to identify what the root cause is. You have to know what the root cause is before you can do anything about it. And if you don't pinpoint the root cause of an issue, you're just putting Band-Aids on things. You're putting Band-Aids on gaping wounds. And underneath, it's all gangrene and rot. And it's going to kill you in the end. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So wisdom from above is wisdom from God. It's real wisdom. It's the only wisdom. It's God's point of view. And he is the father of lights from whom every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above. Wisdom from above is full of mercy, which is service to those in need, and good fruits. And what are the fruits? It says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The harvest of good fruit can only be sown in peace. It can't be sown in dissension and division. 
And that should remind us of Jesus' words, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If you do the things that make for peace, you show yourself to be a son of God or a daughter of God. But if there's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, it will spread through the church and lead to a harvest of disorder and every vile practice. It will lead to a harvest of death. 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The Greek word for murder here is the same one that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so this connects to what James has just said previously about the power of the tongue. You can murder your brother or your sister with your tongue. You can murder another human being with your tongue. And this is not just flowery, metaphorical language, a way of saying something. Death is separation. Death separates one from another. And if I murder you with my words, I am intentionally separating you from me and from others. And some in James's audiences, they desire and they do not have. And so they use their words to attack their brothers in the community. And it seems to come from covetousness. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So among the leaders in these churches were those who had bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and they were coveting what others had and what they didn't have. And so they were using their words because they weren't repenting of their covetousness. They were using their words to murder with their speech. And so in the midst of persecution coming from zealous Jews, the threat of their own lives being taken, these leaders are fighting with each other and they're tearing each other down. They're undermining confidence in other leaders and they're trying to elevate themselves to a position so that they can attain what they want. It's a pretty bad situation. And it's no wonder that James says what he says next, verse 4. You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James says, you adulterous people, And James is not accusing them of actually practicing adultery. When he says, you adulterous people, we should hear the echoes from the Old Testament about how Israel was a wayward bride, unfaithful to her husband, Yahweh. Some of the leaders that James is addressing are spiritually unfaithful to God. With their mouths, they talk a good game of faithfulness. But in their works, they show that they're really in love with the world and they really want friendship with the world. 
they have jealousy and ambition for themselves, just like anybody else who might not be in the kingdom of God. And James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Remember in the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God said that he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. They would be perpetually opposed to one another. And it's implied that God would be on the side of the woman in her battle against the seed of the serpent. But adulterous people who adopt the ways of the world and murder their brothers and sisters with their words show themselves to be on the side of the enemy. They show themselves to be seed of the serpent. It's a pretty harsh thing that James says, but it needs to be said. And if James's audience can hear this and be cut to the heart, then the next step is to repent. Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The passage doesn't need much explanation. It's pretty straightforward. Repent. Repent of the double-mindedness that wants to be faithful to God, but also keep worldly options open. Repent of hatred and violence and murdering with words. The one thing in here that might puzzle us, though, is be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I've always liked the message paraphrase of this, which says, hit bottom and cry your eyes out. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. And the reason we might be puzzled is we might think, but we're forgiven by the blood of Christ. Aren't we to be joyful because we're forgiven? If we're wretched and we're mourned and we're weep, are we not trusting fully in the gospel? Are we putting more emphasis on our emotional response than on what Christ has done for us? Well, I hear an echo of the Beatitudes in what James writes here. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I think we tend to read that often as, blessed are those who lose things or who lose loved ones in the world, for they will be comforted. And that is true. But I think Jesus could be saying, blessed are those who are convicted of their sin and shed tears of repentance, because they will be comforted. Remember that just before the Sermon on the Mount, John the Baptist has been baptizing people in a baptism of repentance. And surely many who were baptized were overwhelmed by the thought of their sins. And Jesus says, blessed are those who have hit bottom and are crying their eyes out because they will be comforted. This is coming to the end of ourselves. And it's saying with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So when James says, be wretched and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I think he's calling these leaders out of their selfish ambition. He's calling them out of murdering their brothers. He's calling them to repent. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. 
The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This comes directly from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if you haven't noticed by now, the Sermon on the Mount is a deep well that James returns to and draws from over and over throughout the letter. Matthew 7, 1-2 says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And it's important to see the connection between speaking evil against someone and judging. Speaking evil against one another is what James has said is murder. It's condemning your brother by your words. It's being judge, jury, and executioner for them. And when you relate to your brother this way, you elevate yourself above the law. You put yourself on a platform looking down on your brother or your sister. So it's fair to ask, though, does that mean that we should say nothing when we see our brother or our sister in sin or when we see real problems that threaten to blossom into sin? And here I appeal to Ephesians 4.25, where Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Part of our life together is that at times we have to speak hard truths to one another. But there's a scriptural difference between coming alongside each other and saying, Brother, I have a concern for what I'm seeing in your life. Can we talk about it? There's a real difference between that, coming alongside someone, and putting myself in a higher position from which I denounce you. There's a huge scriptural difference between the two. And the key is humility. If I'm bringing something to you, I'd better do it humbly and fully aware of sins in my life. And I'd better not do it from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So that's the text. Two points of application. The first, I want to talk about the outside threat. And the reality is that James's listeners face threats that we face today. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And that's no less true today than it was then. Christians are hated by many in this country. We're actively opposed. We're mocked and ridiculed. And our beliefs about how God's law should influence social policy are viewed as hateful. There's false prophets in the church, those who claim to be Christians, but they're fully on board with the world's agenda. They want to be friends with the world. And because of lawlessness, because we perceive that the world is deteriorating all around us, the love of many has grown cold, gone underground, and a lot of people don't want to publicly say that they are Christians. But this was also true for James's audience, and it's true for us. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's the true king. He is the king of kings. 
And there is no one higher in authority in all of what's real, in every square inch of what's real, than Jesus. And we tonight are gathered in the name of the true king, the only king, the name above all names. And the evil one knows that, and so he attacks the church from without, through enemies who cause us trouble. But we're also told in Psalm 2 that he who sits in the heavens laughs. All the enemy's attacks from without will come to naught. They won't amount to anything in the end. Because Jesus is king and he will return in glory. So if you're ever worried about how the world is going, if you're ever concerned about what you see and how the world's going, you must continually turn your mind to the glorious truth that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and that he is at the helm of the cosmos. That is the only thing that will give you assurance and will give you peace, is that Jesus is Lord and he's at the right hand of the Father. There is no higher name. The good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep is in charge. It's good news. Amen? Amen. And if you do that, you will be able to face troubling news, no matter what you read on the Internet, no matter what you're told. And those who trouble us won't trouble us for very long. And we can read those things and know about them without fear. And this is how we're able to respond with meekness, with controlled strength. Why should I lash out against those who attack me? God is my father. Jesus is in charge. Why should I fight back? I don't need to defend myself. Jesus is the king, and he knows that I serve him with a good conscience. I'll let Jesus take care of me. And I'll pray for my enemies. I'll pray for those who attack me. Because I would rather see them come under Jesus' lordship than for Jesus to war against them. Because if Jesus wars against them, then they will be defeated. And I would rather have them be overcome by his love than by his might. So that's the outside threat. Now let's talk about the inside threat. The enemy also fights against the church by leading it to fight against itself, to fight from within. In almost every New Testament letter, the apostles plead with the churches to walk in unity. And I could cite numerous examples, but here's one to speak for all the rest. It's Romans 15, 5 through 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There's a whole lot in our world that we can't do anything about. And it's going to come no matter what we do. It's much that we can't do anything about. But we are not to be ignorant of Satan's designs for dissensions and rivalries and infighting that break up the church from within. That we can't be ignorant about. We must not be outwitted by Satan, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. So quickly, three things that we can do in this vein. One is to ask the Spirit for conviction if we're acting out of jealousy or selfish ambition. That's not always easy to discern within ourselves if that's going on. We need to ask the Spirit for conviction. We need to lay ourselves before the Spirit with ears to hear. And so whether or not you're a leader, you need to ask, am I in this just for me, 
just for what I can get out of it? Am I trying to advance my agenda? Number two is to walk humbly together. We speak truth to one another as we walk humbly side by side. And I don't write you off because I think I'm in a higher place. We come alongside each other and speak truth to one another. And then three is to watch for the fruit. What kind of fruit are we producing as a body? What's growing within us as a church? Is it a harvest of righteousness? Or is there disorder in every kind of vile practice? We need people who watch and who discern who we are becoming as a body. And all leaders want to hear those concerns when those concerns arise. 2 John, verse 8, it's a great verse, says, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. We work together to build together, to walk in harmony together, and we don't want to lose what we have built. And the good news again is that Jesus is king. I don't have to make a name for myself, and, I don't have, and you don't have to push for yourself, because there is no name that's higher than Jesus. We don't have to try to be on top. We don't have to elevate ourselves above anyone because we've all been baptized into the same Christ and we all share the same body and blood of the new covenant. Our eyes together are fully on the king. And so we can, again, echoing Romans, we can with one voice glorify God and welcome one another. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Amen? Amen. Amen.